Listening to IndieLive.radio on Friday, the 30th of April, and you're listening to the daytime show presented by Marlene Halliday and myself, Valerie Gold. We have interviews with commentators, and first of all, you're going to hear from Mark McGagan, who is a research manager with Ipsos Mori and has written articles and commented on polling, which is his real area of expertise. Following that today will be Jerry Hassan, who is another very well-known and prominent political commentator and writer who's been widely published in the press on all sorts of topics, particularly to do with Scottish independence. And Jerry is currently the Senior Research Fellow in Scottish History at the University of Dundee. And Good morning, everyone. This is Marlene Halliday, and I'm here with Mark McGagan. And Mark, thanks for coming on to talk with Indie Live Radio. So you're a professional, you know, data analyst, in particular analysing polling data. And uh, I know you've been um, you've been taking part in various online meetings um, recently to talk about how polling works. Uh, We've got some questions from our listeners to you about that. And given the rush of Scottish polls that we've had over the past month, you know, in the lead up to the Holyrood election next week, I'm looking forward to hearing your response to, to, to those. But maybe before we start talking about polling, maybe before that, I just wanted to ask you about you having made a journey from no to yes. I mean, it's always interesting to hear about what has changed people's minds on independence. And it's the note of yesers that we still need a lot more of. So can you tell us a wee bit about kind of things that brought about your change of heart? Sure. So first of all, thank you very much for, for having me. I'm looking forward to, to, to answering some of the questions that you've you've had from your listeners. Um but yeah, I mean, I think the best starting point is is where I was in 2014 as someone who voted voted no. Um, I'd been a member of the Scottish Labour Party up until that point. I was um, pretty much the the I think the typical voter who could be convinced by promises of more devolution. Um, you know, concerned still about the the impact on Scotland's economy of becoming independent. Concerned about our place in Europe, our place in the world. Um, so I very much wanted more power at Holyrood. I thought that was absolutely necessary, but I wasn't convinced that independence was necessarily the right path to to go down in that regard. Um, and after the the 2014 referendum, after voting no, kind of on that basis, I then voted SNP in 2015. I wanted um, a, a good chunk of of SNP MPs at, at Westminster um, to try and hold the what we thought at the time was going to be a minority Labour government, yeah. not a majority Conservative government, to try and hold their feet to the fire and, and deliver that that devolution or, or what we were calling devo-max um, uh, at the time. And then you kind of fast forward to 2016, that extent of devolution that, that certainly I was hoping for, that lots of no voters were hoping for, um, was not delivered. Yeah. Um, and we've just been... We've outvoted by by England um, in the EU referendum. We voted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU, um, and we're going to be taken out against our will. I mean, I think, like a lot of people, I I felt quite the the the, the, the um, consequences of that vote were quite clear. I don't I don't think I had any real expectation we would be able to negotiate some kind of separate deal or access to the single market or anything. I thought at that point it was pretty clear we'd be dragged out of the EU EU against our will. And I think it was that sense of democratic outrage that really pushed me over the edge in, in terms of not just seriously rethinking whether um, I would vote yes in a future referendum, but also going ahead and, and joining the SNP and, and campaigning for a second referendum so that we could 
have that choice between um, remaining in the UK and a Brexit UK, which I think would be disastrous for us, or going our own way, rejoining the European Union, um, and and through that route trying to build a, a better country going forward. So, I think the reason I, I would vote yes in a referendum tomorrow is is largely the same as the reason that I voted no. Um, in 2014, yeah. I think yeah. the, the ground has shifted so much underneath us that lots of people, I think we've seen that recently, lots of people feel now that um, the, the, that the best way to, to achieve the, the sort of country that they wanted in 2014, that the best route to do that has, has shifted more than anything else. Good to hear that, and uh, you're you're not sort of um, influenced any longer by the well. What you still get the arguments about how you know Scotland out of out of the out of Great Britain will be economically disadvantaged. Well, I think that we need to be, and and certainly to win over um, people who voted no in twenty fourteen. I think we need to be honest and realistic that. The, the reality is that a newly independent Scotland would be facing not the easiest no. of economic circumstances, especially kind of following the, the coronavirus crisis. But I think that having seen the, the consequences of the past um, seven, almost seven years since that vote, the impact of continuing to remain on the UK, um, on, on people in Scotland, of decisions being made by a Conservative government that, that we don't vote for, that that's also incredibly harmful and that the better way for us to go would be to be able to make the decisions um, on, on, on policy and economic matters and employment rights and in lots of other areas. Um, being able to make those decisions our, ourselves at least gives us the tools that we need to build yeah. a fairer economy, to build a stronger economy. And, and while I don't doubt that we would face challenges in, in the beginning, um, for the first five to, to ten years, it, it might be quite difficult. It might be a, a, a quite a, a hard transition that we would have the tools we need to be able to make that transition successfully. And I think in the long term to be able to build um, a, a fairer country that we can be proud of. I mean, I think it, it, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of potential um, Scotland has vast natural resources. We have also kind of a, a vast, very deep skill set. Um, we have a lot of knowledge and expertise, particularly in things like the life sciences industry. We have Neil Mackay in, in, in the Herald recently wrote a really good piece on Scotland's gaming industry as, as a, a worldwide success yeah, that we don't yeah. shout about enough. You know, we have resources, we have the people. Um, we're also living in a country that over the past 30 to 40 years has um structured itself around the city of London and fiscal transfers from London to the rest of the country yeah. on, on the basis of a, a, an incredibly over-centralised economy. So you know, leaving that structure it would be a case of a, a longer term transition. And, and I, I do think we need to be honest that those kinds of transitions can be painful, um, but that they are worth it in the long run if you are using the powers that you gain with independence to pursue policies that benefit people living in Scotland and help us to build a, a, a fairer economy that is beneficial for everybody, not just a, a wealthy few going yeah. forward. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that that also, when you look at, at the polling, I, I mean, I don't think we're going to be able to convince um, former no voters or, or soft yes voters or undecideds that there's not going to be an economic challenge. I think you can, you can shift people's perspectives a little bit if you if you do talk about the skill sets that we have the natural resources that we have but you aren't going people that there won't be some kind of pain i think that the key thing there is around really framing the debate in such a way as to be talking about the potential of what we can do once we transition out of the united kingdom that okay there may be some difficulties um, along the way that it's not going to be free of challenge but that the outcome in the long run is in our hands and in our hands, we can ensure it's a good one. So maybe we'd better move on and, and talk a bit about polling. You know, people have doubts about polling, don't they? And if the answer isn't the one that they want, they express doubts about the poll, or sometimes they express doubts about the pollster, or they suggest that, you know, because the polling company has a, a high-profile unionist shareholder or part owner or something, then it must be all be rigged. I'm sure you can deal with those sorts of, of, of statements pretty easily, but 
are there any sort of doubts or questions about political polling that you know are kind of valid for us to have, almost should have? Absolutely. But I don't think it's a case of there are, you know, there are ulterior motives to to why a certain poll produces a certain outcome. The, The really crucial thing to understand is that every poll has some level of inbuilt error, first of all. Um, that is just statistical. It's because of the the, the statistical rules that govern um, that, that that govern all, all sort of opinion surveying, and that can vary from you know being if if you're say say a party is on forty five percent that they might be on forty eight percent, but equally they could be on forty two percent. Right? There's there's a level of uncertainty built in, and actually that level of uncertainty is even greater in in practice. Um, I can't quite remember which election it was, but after a recent election that the polling industry did not too well in, the the post-mortem investigation by the British Polling Council into to why the polls had been so far off found that historically, actually, the level of error in, in most polls was more like 4% yeah. either yeah. way. So so the, the level of error that's built in is quite large, and there's lots of reasons for that. So there's statistical error, then there's also error just around how you build a sample, how representative it is. One of the, the, I think, quite legitimate concerns that people can have is that the folk that we get in polls are are much more politically engaged than the general population are. Um, Certainly when you look at the proportion of people in a poll who say they're going to vote, it's usually a lot higher than than the proportion of people who actually vote. But there are definitely legitimate concerns. Are the people we're talking to like normal people? Um, I think that the, the pollster's great worry is that the people that they're talking to yeah. are like a, a question time audience and yeah. that, okay, yeah. they might be, you might, you might be getting normal members of the general public and I say normal quite loosely, um, but they're certainly not average members of yeah. the general public. Yeah. And so maybe they don't reflect um, public opinion, but at the same time, if you look at the accuracy of Hollywood polls over the past two or three elections, there isn't a huge amount of difference between what the polling was telling us in the run-up to the election and what the actual result was. And and where there are differences, um, they can usually be explained by looking at, okay, what was the trend in the polls before the last poll that was published? So in 2016, you might have thought, if you looked at the polling, the final polling before the election, that the SNP would have won more votes than it actually won. But if you look at the trend before the last poll, which was around about a week before the election, the trend in the SNP vote was downwards. So actually, you you really would actually expect it to be lower, perhaps, on, on the day than the polls had found. So they're generally quite accurate. Um, they tend to overestimate the green vote a little bit historically. They tend to underestimate the conservative vote a little bit. And there might be various reasons for that. One of those might be that online polls in particular perhaps don't get as many average voters over the age of, of say, 50 or 55, yeah, the cohort yeah. who are more likely to vote Tory. To vote Tory, yeah. yeah. Um, so so there, are, there are some slight differences, but generally they're fairly accurate. And I think that when you take all of that into account, and then you also take into account the fact that pollsters have an interest in keeping each other honest um, and certainly when there are um, dodgy polls or, or polls that look a bit off the often the first people to question them are other pollsters um, quite publicly as well when you take all of that into account and the transparency that there is in the polling industry you know yes there, there are legitimate concerns you can have there are legitimate bones you can pick um, with polls but they are I think not not of the not of the malicious type. I don't think there are ulterior motives um, yeah. moving polls in one direction or, or another. And all of these issues are issues that, that pollsters, I think, are perfectly transparent about. Also, it's fairly obvious that it's when polls are moving in a direction that someone doesn't want that they'll start casting aspersions on it. But they don't tend to do that Indeed. when they're moving in the direction you know they do want. And and yep. also, I suppose, well, polling companies uh, need to be, you know, they need to guard their reputation, don't they? So it's not in their interest to be um, involved in in polling that uh, you know can be criticised like that. Absolutely. And and I think if you look at any, the, the vast majority of polling companies, political polling is a tiny, tiny yeah. fraction of the actual work that they do. The vast majority of the work that they do is private 
work for for businesses, for governments, for charities, and part of your reputation as a research agency is built on your public polling. If your public polling is inaccurate, the first thing you're going to be asked by a potential client is, why should I trust any of the data that you produce? Because it it didn't get that election right or, or you know you got this election wrong um so yes absolutely there is an interest in guarding your own your own yeah. reputation yeah. um as well and being as accurate as possible is, is the only way you can do that so maybe if we look at we've had a few questions sent in by um by listeners so the first one was from julia who i, I know lives over in edinburgh i think you've actually answered most of the points that she makes except maybe the last one I'll, I'll just read it out so she said this is julia speaking personally i do not take much notice of polls especially when the outcomes vary so much i would be interested to know how and whom they choose to contact given they require a cross-section of age and gender and income to get an honest result i think you've probably covered that in, in what you've already said uh, Mark, but then she goes on and says, surely it is possible to uh, obtain a result you want by nuancing the question. What yes. do you say to that? I mean, that's absolutely right. You, you can bias a question. Um, it's fairly easy to do. There are various ways to do it. And, and knowing what those are is the best way to avoid doing it because you can do it accidentally quite easily um one of the the trickiest things to do as a as a researcher as a public opinion researcher is to write an entire questionnaire of completely unbiased questions that aren't going to influence people's <laughs> answers um it's very difficult to do actually which is why you for something that's this important you test your questions extensively right. you adjust your methods over time like i said earlier you want to be as accurate as possible so when you're off, you know, if you're asking people how they're going to vote and, and you're off a little bit at the end of the day, you want to look into what else could we have done to be more accurate in the end. And part of that is is the question wording. I mean, I'm I'm aware that you 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 often get questions asked that frame a, a, an issue in a particular way. I think in particular when newspapers, for example, feel that um the public don't have a very good awareness of an issue, they might try to give a little explanation of the issue first and that can yeah. kind of push people in one yeah. direction or another. So it is quite important, I think, that if you if you see numbers um saying that you know X percent of the percentage of the public think this or think that, it is quite important to look at what the actual question wording was. What were the answer options people were given mm -hmm. as well? Were they forced to choose between two options yeah. that don't reflect the full range of opinions people could have? Um, Checking these things is, is quite important. But when it comes to voting intention, most of the polling companies use basically the same question. Um, there is a slight difference between um, how some pollsters ask about the regional list vote. Some pollsters call it your second vote. Yeah, yeah. Some pollsters just call it the regional or party list vote. Um, and one interesting um, difference between the two is that the SNP vote share is usually a bit higher in the polls that don't call it a second vote. Mm -hmm. I do think it can be, I mean, we'll, we'll see in, in this election whether um, the SNP vote is, is closer to those who don't, don't use the second, um, that wording of a second vote um, or not. But in the past, it has been closer to those polls that you, that, that avoid using that, that second vote wording. And there are various reasons for that. I think the, the, the most common suggested reason, I think the most plausible reason is that if you call it a second vote, people think they can't pick the party that they voted for when you at, or, or they said they'd yeah. vote for when yeah. you when you uh, asked them about their constituency vote. Yeah, um, so I think interested. it's less important in a in Yeah. Yeah. So they think they think that they maybe they can't vote for the, the party that they gave their their quote unquote first vote to. Uh, when it's really important to keep in mind that when you are given your ballot papers, there's no first vote and second vote. You can vote in the party list before you vote. You know, you can put your cross in beside the party on the list vote before you put a cross beside a candidate in the constituency vote. It's not one way round or the other. There have been elections in the past where um, there have been people who, you know, decent numbers of people who have voted on the party list vote but haven't voted for a candidate. Um, they haven't actually submitted a vote for a candidate. Okay. So it, it's def it definitely is not 
a first vote and a second vote. And I think that's the only area in terms of the question wording when it comes to voting intention that I would um, that I would point to and, and just raise a little bit of a question mark over. But like I said, generally speaking, in the past, the polls have been fairly accurate um, in, Scotland, in Scottish elections. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's a huge problem. But no, you, 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 can, you can. You can influence how people are going to vote. What we, uh, sorry, how people how people answer questions. Yeah, yeah. What we do is is the best we can to to avoid doing that, um, and the best we can to to give people an unbiased question with the full range of viewpoints um, yeah. to to pick from. So, Fiona, another listener says she got sent a poll yesterday, so she must be on that company's list. And among the normal voting intentions question, the poll contained the question. Did we fight in two world wars for a Holyrood parliament? And she asks, who would use that kind of question and why? Although we can probably think of a few people who might, but, you know, why would that end up? I mean, I don't know who, obviously, we don't know who commissioned the poll or anything, but that's a pretty leading question, isn't it? Well, part of the, part of this is that, Polling companies do two types of of surveys, um, two types of polls. One is um, what what would be called an ad hoc poll. It's for a specific client. It's commissioned yeah. by one company or one person. All the questions on that poll come from that 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 company or that person, and the questionnaire is designed very carefully um, by a specific researcher and, and and so on. The other type is called a syndicated poll, which is one which is run on a regular basis, say weekly or every two weeks by a company or even daily by a company. Um, and lots of people can buy onto that poll and that poll will right. ask lots of different questions about lots of different issues. Yep. And and the reason that companies do that is because it's just it's cheaper. It's cheaper for each individual person who yep. wants to, to ask a question. Um, I would suspect that in the midst of all of the normal voting intention questions and so on, that someone has wanted to, to ask that specific question. I could probably imagine a handful of uh, of specific people or organizations who might want to ask something like that. I mean, it's not, the thing is that that's not a leading question, right? A leading question would be if I gave you some context first, um, or if I said, many people say that we didn't fight in two world wars for a Hollywood parliament, that would be a leading question to then say, do you agree? Right, right. That's leading. Okay. Um, but the question, that, that question itself isn't leading. It is obvious what the answer is, though. The answer is no. <laughs> no one fought in either world war. No, no one's fought any war for a Hollywood <laughs> parliament. The answer is obviously, uh, the, the answer obviously is no. Most people will say no. Um, the problem is that I imagine whoever's commissioned it will then publish it yeah. and say, look, Everybody disagrees with this idea that we fought two world wars for a Hollywood yeah. Parliament, despite the fact that no one is making making that argument. So, I mean, that's a slightly separate issue, but but I wouldn't say that that's a leading question yeah. necessarily. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Good to get a definition of what a leading question is. But is that not the kind of question that leaves polling companies with a bit of a tattered reputation, at least from some quarters? The vast majority of polling companies um, are members of the Market Research Society, which does have a code of conduct, which is very strict on what sorts of questions you can and can't ask. Yes, I mean, yes. speaking from a professional point of view, I, I don't see the problem with asking that that specific question. I mean, I know that how it's going to be used is going to be really weird. and But that that's not really a problematic question in and of itself. Um, it's not certainly it's not something that's unethical to ask. I, I do think there are cases where polling companies... Um, get themselves into a little bit of, of of hot water, particularly around around elections. I think you know, Comrades, Savanta Comrades had a poll for the Scotsman, a snap poll, right after the committee hearings in which Alex Salmond and then Nicola Sturgeon gave evidence that showed claimed to show that independence voting intention was down after those sessions, um, and it later transpired that they hadn't waited it. Yeah, the way remember. that they had been yeah. waiting the previous independence questions. Yeah. And then it transpired that they hadn't even asked people if they would vote in an independence referendum. Yeah. So that was, and, and, you know, that was published with lots of caveats around it about this isn't really a headline voting intention poll. This isn't really a, an independence voting intention poll in, in the way that they would normally do it. But that's not what people see. What yeah. people see is, Yes, down, no, up. That's a level of nuance that people actually actually see, and I think it's 
it's I think it's when really when polling companies get themselves into hot water is when they I think assume that people are going to read all the caveats and accept all the nuances and accept that they've, something's been done slightly differently um, when they really are not going to take any of that on board um, and you you kind of wind up with, with egg on your face when yeah. it turns out that the claim that was being made in the back of your data isn't really supported by your data for, for whatever reason. Yes, yes. And obviously it wasn't them making making the claim. Anyway, let's move on a bit. So we've now got uh, Steve's question. Steve's from lives over in Dunoon. He says, he's asking you, polls are showing a fallback in support for independence and recent survey polls are showing a small drop in the support for SNP with Labour registering an increase somewhat at the expense of Lib Dems. And, and he's wondering, you know, are there any age demographic breakdowns that su- might suggest some reasons behind this? I mean, obviously what Steve was thinking from what he said afterwards, further on that question, he's, he's wondering if um, the fact that the, the over 50s, you know, have all been um, immunised now against against COVID, does that kind of tilt them a bit to being a bit more sympathetic towards, you know, the Tories or towards Union? It's not something we can tell. I, yeah. I mean, I think there's one thing that we can, just to pick up on that vaccine point, because I think this is, there's actually a good point to be made around this, is it since the beginning of the year, Savannah, so Savannah comrades have been asking whether people have a favourable opinion of all sorts of different politicians and the Scottish government and the UK government since last December. Yeah. And one trend that's really stuck out to me has been the improving, I mean, still pretty dire, right? But the improving figures for Boris Johnson and the UK government, um, his favourables have, have not gone up enormously, but the proportion of people who are unfavourable towards Boris Johnson has gone down quite a lot. The number of people in Scotland who are unfavourable towards the UK government has gone down and their evaluations of how well the UK government has handled the coronavirus crisis um, have improved. So I, I do think around vaccination, I do think there's a very clear vaccine bounce for mm-hmm. the Conservatives and it's mm-hmm. not just in England where it's very clear that there's been a vaccine bounce. I mean, there, there are polls some polls have it tighter, but there are polls saying that the, the Tories in England are as many as 14 points ahead of Labour. Yeah. But there, there there definitely has been, I think, a bit of a bounce in, in Scotland. Again, it's difficult to see whether that will turn into votes for them on the day, or maybe it was going to turn into votes and it will all be undone by by um, the, the sleaze and corruption scandals that are plaguing number 10 at the moment, mm-hmm. um, or even just undone by Douglas Ross as as a leader, to be quite frank. Um, but the, the there definitely has been a bit of a bounce, a bit of an improvement in how um, how, how Scots broadly um, see Boris Johnson and the UK government, and that may well have have played into some of the shifts that we've that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. So maybe if we move on and just um, just talk a wee bit about just what is generally happening in the Scottish polls, and I mean, are you seeing any particular indicators or? trends sure. you know now compared to 2016 and and one thing in particular there have been these i think it's now three panel based polls and each of them puts alaba on six percent but the other companies polls don't have them at anything like that it's, it's um, could you say a, a wee bit about what might be going on there what sort of factors i mean is it an, an anomaly or you know they might be right but so- yeah, so I, I mean that's the key question, is it? Isn't it? Who, who's right and who's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> we don't really know. We won't, we won't know until the day of the vote. And and you know, I've become in, I've become increasingly unconfident in the various reasons I've been able to think of as to why panel base seem to have um, uh, the Alaba party higher than than the other posters. Um, I think what we what we know at this point is that it's got nothing to do with how they're actually asking the question. I think that's that's what we thought to begin with, yeah. particularly because they initially um, asked uh, asked voters about the Alaba party and then in brackets led by Alex oh, Salmond. Yeah. That's, that's gone and it's had no impact on, on the numbers that they've been producing. Um, and it's, it's kind of, it's almost strange that it's so reliably 6% as well. So one broad point, no, two broad points. One is that, panel base don't 
weight by turnout. So this is something that posters do where they ask you how likely you are to, to vote. If you say you're a 10 out of 10, then your voting intention response will be given a value of one. And if you say you're nine out of ten, it'll be given a value of zero point nine, right. and so, so on. on. So if yeah. you so so the more likely you say you are to vote, the greater weight is assigned right. to your voting intention. So it could be partly that Alapa Party um, people who say they're going to vote for the Alapa Party on the list are slightly less likely to vote than other um, voters are. Um, other other people responding to the polls are. And as a result slightly of less, that, less likely to vote. Slightly less likely to. And so because of that, when the other pollsters um, wait by turnout, they're waiting okay. at the, the Alapa right. party vote down and yeah. panel base aren't. But I think if that was the only explanation for it, I would be very surprised because it is quite a big difference. So the other the other suggest the other area that, that, that could be different is just because of the makeup of panel bases panel. Their, their 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 panel of of, of respondents um, might be skewed towards people who are just more likely to say that they're going to vote for the Alapa party. I've seen some people suggest that this might be because back in 2013, 2014, panel base were giving better numbers for yes than other posters mm-hmm. were, um, and, and folk were being encouraged to to sign up to panel bases panel effectively. Um, during that period and it might be a hangover from that but it really is very very difficult to tell exactly what what the reason is and I think the most that we can say is that it's the result of what we would call um, a house effect which is essentially a a catch-all term for the sometimes very small and sometimes very big differences in how pollsters conduct their polls there, there must be something about how panel base do their polls that leads to Alapa registering a higher, a higher percentage of, of support than, than for other polling companies. And because it's only panel base, I think that leads us to think that, well, panel base must be the outlier. Panel base is probably wrong. And I think in the balance of probability, that 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 seems like the most likely explanation. But I think we need to be really, really careful yeah. to say that we don't, know. we don't know. We don't know who's right and who's wrong about this. We don't know if 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 this is um, panel base being the outlier or if panel base are detecting a group of voters who maybe used to vote and have stopped voting recently. Um, and that's why they're, they're kind of downweighted by other companies, but they will vote this time mm-hmm. because... Uh, they, they're because they're among the, the the group of people who historically used to vote for Alex Salmond and in the northeast of Scotland, for example, and, and maybe they've been more put off in recent years and have stopped voting. You know, there there are various reasons why panel base could actually be picking up voters who will vote on the day that yeah. the rest of the polling companies are missing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we, we we need to be. There are various reasons why this might be the case. I mean, I think we need to be really careful not to to be too dismissive of those six percent polls but at the same time on the balance of probability i think it's more likely that the alaba are, are sitting somewhere between you know three four or five percent at the moment yeah um, and i think the most we can say is that um things are up in the air so i guess we're just going to have to wait till i was going to say till thursday but actually it's more likely to be saturday isn't it friday and saturday before we really know what's going to happen so, Mark, just want to say again, thank you so much for coming on the programme. And, um, well, speaking for myself, I'm certainly much better informed now about how polling works than I was half an hour ago. Thanks again, Mark. And maybe we'll be able to get you back on the programme after the election to tell us your impressions of the results. Our next guest on the Friday daytime show on IndieLive.radio is Jerry Hassan. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. And we're absolutely delighted to have Jerry, who is a prolific writer. He's a lecturer, academic, journalist, and generally a commentator in politics. So we're very lucky to have you at, at this crucial point, um, just a week, uh, less than a week to go to the election um, for Holyrood. So, Jerry, could we just start by a, a general question? Just. Um, mm quite open-ended you know how do you think this campaign is going how do you see the the election shaping up next week 
I think it's, I mean, this is obviously the sixth Scottish Parliament elections. And I think it is on one level the strangest one one I've ever um, experienced and watched. And that's for some fairly obvious reasons. Um, COVID, COVID being one. Um, secondly, the, the fact that because there isn't, you know, so much party activity going on, like, say, the meetings, the rallies, I think that's meant that, in a strange way, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the kind of the big principles that are underlying this election have come more to the fore. So the issue of independence, the issue of does Scotland have the right to decide its own future, which some people obviously um, contest, the issue of uh, Boris Johnson and and uh, the, the shambolic, deceitful nature of, of, of his regime, all those have come much, much more to the fore than if we'd had day-to-day much more... Um, everyday um, hectic uh, campaigning. And it does mean, I think, there's, there's there's good things in that in terms of big principles, but some of the other stuff that affects people's everyday lives, um, which is really important, gets a bit lost, I think. Uh, as, I mean, we may come on to this, as in, for instance, last night's Channel 4, um, well, not last night's, this week's Channel 4 debate, um, which was really on those big stuff, independence, Boris Johnson, Scotland's uh, right to decide. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to talk about that. We may... We are recording this on Wednesday morning for our Friday show. Some of us would have been watching that Channel 4 debate. What did you make of it? What did I think of the Channel 4 debate? Right, I love politics, right? And I, and I, and I love, uh, you know, being immersed in it. But I'm a human being as well. And and, and, and I do I do aspire. I'm not a particularly partisan or a, definitely not a party partisan uh, political person. Sometimes my heart does sink at um, the nature of politicians um, not just talking through each other, mm. but kind of in a way um, by doing that, um, which is all all that is part of politics as well, kind of av- avoiding some of the big issues. So we we got um, we got some of the big stuff, as I was saying earlier. We got the fact that Scotland's uh, right to decide its own future. We got the the Douglas Ross saying basically believes the word of uh, Boris Johnson. Interestingly, Douglas Ross being so useless in that debate, he forgot to mention that he had resigned from Boris Johnson's government on an issue of principle. You know, might have been might have been a good saving point for him among with some some voters. Um, but I thought um, it's I'm, I'm not really very attracted to that kind of that kind of debate. And I think of the three of them, the there was a BBC one that was a really really fronted by Sarah Smith. That apart from that, had technical issues in it and problems that wasn't very good. The Colin Mackay one on STV worked, worked better in the way because they cross-examined each other and they had to listen to each other at points. But yeah. I, and I, I, I don't think it was that great. I mean, probably Nicola Sturgeon ended up marginally the winner because there was a point where um, Douglas Ross, Anna Sarwar, and even to a lesser extent, Roy Rennie uh, were going at her. And that that obviously yeah. works to the, the fact that she's the first minister, the only candidate to be first minister, and they're all kind of like you know trying to catch up or pull her down. So I don't think it was really that effective. And obviously, like as in all three debates, as a constant, <laughs> Douglas Ross kind of didn't do very well. He's he's not a very good debater. Um, he's tried macho. He's tried non-macho. He's he's clearly kind of desperate in that, and uh, it doesn't really work. I don't even imagine it works that well with the base, the Tory base. Well, of the three, I've seen all three, and of the three, um, I would say that the STV one was the best, but mm. I, I, like yourself, I'm not really a, a big fan of that format. I did think that mm. um, in the BBC one and the Channel 4 one, the the moderator, Sarah Smith and Christian Guru Murphy, they weren't very good at uh, stopping no. people talking over yeah, each no. other. But then Douglas Ross did that a lot. I thought it was really funny when they when they asked him about Boris. You were saying about Boris's remarks that he's, he's and it was quite funny because he. I totally condemn these are disgraceful remarks, but he didn't make them. <laughs> you know, so I know. that was a bit strange. He, you know, to like to say that these 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 remarks were appalling, but of course he didn't make them. I know. So, and, and there was a great, I mean, I mean, in, in terms of like great, in terms of like really bad for Douglas Ross, when he said that, and then, and then Nicola Sturgeon yeah. said, well, you then decided, pre-decided and judged me before the evidence and called for me to resign, but you're prepared to take Boris Johnson's word when, when there's witnesses saying, I thought that was a really damning about, I mean, he totally walked into that trap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Boris is like, 
well-known for his porky pies, really, isn't he? I mean, he's yeah. like a proven liar. He's, been, he's even been sacked by other Tories for lying. By... That's how he was sacked by Michael Howard as Tory leader. He was sacked from a newspaper for lying and making serially making stories up. And, you know, if you if you read a couple of biographies of Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson is a man who thinks, like, the truth is for lesser lesser mortals like ourselves, basically. Not not for people like him. And then, and then to... I, I think one of the things we may be getting into is that... Um, when Scotland, you know, gets to an independence referendum, I think it's highly likely we won't have the advantage uh, in terms of independence of uh, Boris Johnson as Premier, because I think it may be a while yet, but I think we are in a kind of, you know, the beginning of the end of Boris Johnson as, pre- as Premier. I mean, if he's still popular with the Tory base, then I suppose he's probably, he's probably right. safe. I mean, just to pick you up on that point, you know, yeah. I mean, whether Boris is there or, or not... I mean, I think there's a bit of a, there's certainly a, an expectation amongst mm. those of us in the Yes movement that when it mm. comes to setting up the next uh, referendum, that mm. there'll just be a sort of very reactive, no, can't do that, um, blocking sort of response from mm. a Tory government. Mm. So do you think that is right? Do you think there's any chance they might be a bit more creative than that, a bit more intelligent? Yeah, that's a very well just well put the way you put that there. Uh, I, I've, I've always, I mean, I, I used to like a lot of people, right? Uh, it's not the way I normally phrase it in public, but I used to like lots of people, I'm talking years and years ago, I used to hate Tories <laughs> and, uh, you know, not very, not not understandable. And I went and deliberately countered that by going and doing a research project, interviewing 30 of them in their homes in the Glasgow area. And it just changed, it, it, well, it just changed me from not hating them, to trying to understand them. Because Toryism has, we might not like it in lots of it or most of it, but it has a rich tradition. It's funnily enough, historically, in Britain, it is Tory unionism until Thatcher that understood the nature of the United Kingdom better because Labour unionism was about building a big state for redistributing and doing all those things. And so in, in Tory unionism, there are still elements of understanding that the union is... Four Nations is this is a genuine partnership rather than a you know fraud partnership, and and there are people like who've now left like Rory Stewart would be a good example who absolutely intuitively and and and, and as an intelligent politician got it and realised which now that's just declining year on year on year to the point that um, I, I've always thought that, that the main chance of the union being saved um, from the political centre of the UK is from the Tories, but it just gets less and less because you have to engage in an emotional argument from Toryism there. And then you have to do practical things like, I mean, you have to do, uh, uh, dread words, levelling up that is about actual real redistribution. And that is possibly, probably beyond beyond the, the self-interest of the Tory coalition uh, now. I mean, a UK state that introduced proportional representation would would in some way dilute part of the argument of independence with some people because we in Scotland would never have a majority Tory government inflicted on us that we we haven't voted for. And and to a, a part of the independence constituency, it's kind of where I came in years ago in a way. That's a more that's a well, not just a moral, but a democratic affront to us. But I don't think they have that element of insight or challenging their own self-interest. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, it's my judgment. I mean, I mean, in a certain way, you know, with Scotland mm. out of the union, th- mm. th- that makes it all the more easy f- for the Tory party to maintain themselves in, in government in England, doesn't it? Because we always provided, a, you know, even though it's not Labour yeah. any longer, but we do provide a lot of balance against um, against Tory uh, against Tory. Tory ideas, you know, they probably like last yeah. night. Or was it last night? No, the vote against the fire safety for cladding. Yes, and, yes. You know, I looked at it and I thought, well, what 30, 30 Tories rebelled, but they still had a majority of 70. How did they manage that? And I had a look actually this morning, and of course, it was because the SNP abstained. It, it was England and Welsh legislation, they obviously yes. said, okay. Traditionally, they don't vote on anything to do with English legislation, English-only legislation. Mm. And I thought, well, that just shows you, without Scotland in there, you know, a Tory government would have a, a free ride, really, I think, for a long time. Yes, see, that, that, I mean, I, I know that argument well. That if, if you believe in the union um, and, OK, you know, the, 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 
emotional and intellectual argument of the union in the unionist constituency community is getting weaker and weaker by the year. But if you believe in the union, you don't believe it because of some uh, kind of cost-benefit analysis or or just the political arithmetic. You don't think, right, if we hive off Wales and then hive off Scotland, you know, we rule the rump forever, basically. Because... There's a whole sort of, A, you believe in this thing called Britain, and 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 there's even secondly the fact that you you know there's four nations, the fact that there's Scotland is Scotland is only what eight point six percent of the population or something, but it is one third the landmass, and even more in terms of maritime bound. Scotland is part of what makes it the great, the great in Great Britain and the great in the United Kingdom and all that and all that projection and mm. you know we, we 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 may find it all all revolting, uh, but but. You can can you can understand it, and you lose such a large part. I mean, it's a the argument about independence is an is an existential one on some level. I mean, it has so many levels, and by by one bit of the United Kingdom, you know, leaving and 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 leaving with this diminished, like you know, a, a, a greater Serbia kind of, um, uh, or 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 a Russia, but the Russian analogy being up because of course an an imperial state that's not not worked out and come to terms with decline. It's just not how unionists think. So, because I, I, I hear it, you know, you hear a lot. Of, well, if 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 the if the Tory constituency fired us off into themselves, basically they could rule forever. It's not how they think. Yeah, um, okay. Beyond beyond, some, you know, a couple of fringes really. Um, but it is it is possible, like a Czech Slovak scenario, that any any beginning of a breakup can come not just from Scotland. It could be triggered by Northern Ireland. It could be triggered by some kind of a you know what what happens at the the English centre as well. It is it isn't just Scotland that necessarily decides how how an ending happens. Mm. Yeah. So to get back to the Scottish Parliament elections, which mm-hmm. are imminent, mm-hmm. um, one of the the real developments this time has been the emergence of a new party in Alaba, led by um, Alex Salmond, the former First Minister. Mm. So I was wondering if you had any, what's your reaction to that? How do you view um, their significance? Um, I think I think it's going to depend on how, how they do their, their significance, because this could be something you know, very significant, um, or it could be something of a bit of a damp, Squib in that we the, the evidence we have so far is on polling is that uh, panel base have consistently put them at six percent and everybody else has put them at um I can't there was one poll had them at one percent and and I think there's one at two and then quite a lot at three yeah. um so if if as is today's panel base shows they won eight seats that's that's real that's real game changing stuff um. I don't know about today's panel based poll, but the two previous did use Alex Salmond as a as a kind of like they they told people Alba Alex Salmond, which is one of the reasons they were on six percent there. Um I think we spoke to James Kelly last week and he said mm. it was only the first panel based one right. that mentioned Alex Salmond that the second one didn't have his name on. Right, okay. Okay. Well, then there's just quite a bit of difference between between panel base and everybody else at the moment. You, you, I mean, you know, opinion polls are are, are guesstimates, obviously, and um, I personally have always always loved opinion polls as as adding adding to the the, the knowledge. What what Alex Salmond has as a, as a as a problem is as as you know, um, is Alex Salmond is phenomenally unpopular yeah. with the Scottish public, and he's yeah. much much more unpopular than. Boris Johnston. So he's got on those polls. He's got about between ten to fourteen percent of the voters have a have a favourable rating of him. What that means is not that he's completely toast, but that he's just got to mine a very very small constituency quite quite a bit, and also then the the then the, the, the so called supermajority argument uh, of peeling off a bit of the SNP list vote to gain to gain representation. I I think it's very um. In, in the balance, whether whether they will do that, and um, I th- think it's highly possible Salmon himself will win a seat in the northeast of Scotland. I would be I would be su- I would be surprised if he doesn't just give a name recognition. The fact he represented the area for thirty years, um, whether they then with one seat or or more have any impact um, is is a whole other set of questions it doesn't it doesn't change i mean it, it does change some of the balance in the scottish parliament on some things i mean an alba party holding the balance would be able to on the budget for example if it was a hung parliament but i'm not sure is it is there is a game changer on independence because as you'll know i mean 
despite the fact of how people reference a supermajority uh, because of one part, I think it's the Scotland Act 2016, that is about that is about electoral matters, it is not about independence. So there is no such thing as a supermajority. You have you have no majorities, you have small majorities, and you have big majorities, but there isn't such thing as a supermajority. Yeah, yes. And I mean he'd be very you know, it's very unlikely if they do manage to get some seats that there would be a question of holding the balance of power because it's the Greens that, you know, mm. if the SNP doesn't get an outright majority, it's the, yeah. it will be what we've got already. It's the Greens like, looking likely to gain MSPs. That's where the kind of cooperation happens. And that's true even on, on, on the panel-based poll this yes. week, that even, to, even where, where yeah. they have the highest number, I mean, you know, I would regard it as a miracle if Albo win eight, but you know we are in uncharted waters here. You know, not to um, rule that out, but even in that scenario, the Greens on their own hold hold the balance of power. Um, I I do think. I mean, I I, I am not an Alex Salmond fan, um, and uh, he is someone who has immense talents and. Uh, you know, without Alex Salmond, it's arguable the SNP would have never won narrowly in 2007, never won the majority in 2011, and never challenged and shook up Scottish politics to the extent we got an independence referendum, and, and, and thus you know everything was changed forever practically. But I mean, it's, in my view, and my and I think gender matters here massively, and I think men have a thing to step up here. I regard his decline as I, I regard his decline as one of the the steepest. I'm going to be controversial here, moral declines of a public politician in the UK in my adult life. I think the only person I can compare him with in any decline is, is Tory Blair. Um, because to have gone from what he has done, the achievements, to, to how he cannot even show contrition uh, for, obviously he was found innocent, etc., in a court of law, but he has admitted that some of his behaviour ages ago was not was not adequate was not defensible and yet he can't show any any contrition yeah. and and there is a kind of male like with Boris Johnson definitely male entitlement arrogance that um I find um really un, un, unappealing and I I thought wrongly we'd got past a bit of that in Scottish public yeah, life actually. yes as you say it's not it's him it's the not it's the not voicing any contrition about it that that um, I'm pretty certain must be putting a lot of people off-footing yeah. and, and just to say, I mean, I, I, I was listening to your programme last week when you were having a discussion with um, Laura Moody, and there is a, uh, and I thought she was very, um, of, of the Scottish Greens standing in South Scotland, and she, I thought she was very um, impressive on, on, on the, the really controversial issue, the trans issue. And it is interesting that with Salmon's record, that, that one of the few constituencies he's, that party's actually, you know, rooted maybe rooted is an overstatement but has some connection is on the the, the trans debate i think that's there's, there's a there's a paradox there at least you know yeah yeah just, just before we i know we want to move on to other things in a minute but before we do that have you got what do you think about what's um you know pushing this whole idea about i mean well the alaba arising but before that there was afi there was isp there was max yeah. the there's an in, certainly there's impatience there i mean what do you think's at the root of that do you think it's all just you know lead to cockani here or maybe some of that impatience is quite valid uh, well the, the snp's the snp's dominance um from 2011 onwards, when they won the majority government, and then you know the colossal victory of 2015, success breeds people thinking, "Why can't we have our cake now?" Basically, why can't we have all our cake immediately? Um, and underestimating the the strength of their political uh, opponents and and indeed of the arguments of their political opponents. I mean, I I think in a way, looking back on it, practically winning 56 out of 59 wasn't quite a disaster that'd be an overstatement but but it just allowed people who uh were a bit too like we 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 want change now we want um, independence now uh combined with obviously then the brexit vote um so you have the, the smp's rise you have brexit and you have people kind of lots of people who came of to politics of the independence referendum um kind of in a way there's, there's an argument, I think, in parts of the independence of, of caricaturing uh, the, the, the unionist argument. That 
again, I mean, you know, some people disagree. There is there is a completely legitimate argument for the union. Uh, it's getting weaker by the year, etc. But there is an argument for it, and I've always taken the view that I think politics, if you're going to win your argument, you understand your opponents, you don't completely stare at them. So there are people, you know, the, the, the UDIers or uh, people thinking even NDREF in 2014 was stolen from us, you know, not just stolen by media manipulation, but stolen by like, you know, the, the postal ballots. Um, and in all this as well, I, I do think while one can criticise the fringes of a movement and all movements have fringes, I think the SNP's big tentism and, and centrism, um, because they became so popular, post-2014, post-2016, the, the, I mean, it's not an accident. There hasn't been strategic work done by the SNP on independence beyond the Growth Commission. And in that vacuum as well, just people fill it. People felt, well, we want change now, um, and you know, we, we see the, the, the argument of the British state getting weaker um, year by year. So I don't think it's surprising you get these party initiatives, you also have that filling the reality of you had the, the Wings Over Scotland argument about gaming the, gaming the electoral system, because the SM, the SNP have ended up in exactly the same position as Labour have electorally, and because they do so well in the first past the post, they don't do well in the list seats. And as I, I said to some people at some points about the Wings argument, this, this argument was put exactly at the same, same way by Labour dinosaurs, as people like probably nobody remembers him now, Brian Donoghue was a Labour MP for Ayrshire. He proposed setting the Scottish Cooperative Party up as a separate party on the list so they could game the electoral system and keep a Labour majority. That That's what people do, uh, you know, party sort of like dinosaurs in Labour anyway, when when you're so, so successful. So um, we're conscious that you're given this your time, Jerry, and we'd like to ask you about another area that's yeah. not quite as party political, and that is that we know that you're very interested in culture, uh, and that is um, you have organised like festivals, I know, on the yeah. side of Glasgow at Governor Hill Baths, um, some of them which have included political discussions. That's right. But, um, I would just like to ask you about how you see the role of culture, and I'm thinking of, you know, writers and uh, dramatists, poets, music. How do you see that fitting into the struggle for independence? Well, I think, um, I mean, A, art and culture is just like, you know, is is a, is a vibrant part of, of life um, and, and really important, really important on, uh, as, as expression of, what we are as human beings um that, that that that's 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 a fundamental secondly and uh, i do think that that by by being cultural and 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 doing cultural things in scotland one is one is making a set of um political points about scotland as as a as a political and cultural uh, community and so in 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 most cultural activity i i i'm involved in i would see i think there's a there's a soft self-determination in it um, that is making that statement of Scotland as a community and, and a distinct community. Um, I think from that, um, it's something that I think, I think I'm think i trying to remember where I came to on this. I think it was the writer Naomi Mitchison who who, who made this point years ago, um, who was a kind of ILP or but very home rule strokes, uh, sympathetic to oh. sympathetic to self-government. Oh. Um, and it's, it's about culture as and cultural self-determination as a way of thinking about, about independence. I, I've never really been um, attracted to the idea of independence as being about the parliament. Um, obviously, you, you you should have a parliament um, and, and a democratically elected parliament um, running, running Scotland. But the SNP for the last 20, maybe longer years, have framed independence as being about, the, how it says, the full powers of a parliament, the normal powers of a parliament. And... I get that argument. They're trying to normalise independence. They're trying to make it appear as unthreatening and less of a rupture to to voters. But I am. Um, I've always thought it's it's a very limiting argument about independence, um, and uh, and a large part of politics, let alone life and culture, isn't isn't about parliaments and politicians. It's about us. And so I I like this argument that culture and there's there's several levels of culture. There's the culture as arts and culture. There's the culture as in the cultural norms and values of a nation. And that is one of the things that makes us distinctive. Um, how how we do our public services, how we think about inequalities, how we think about power. 
And I, I'd really like to see um, a version of independence championed by the SNP, the Greens and others well, that talked about that rather than just about our, our, our political institutions. Because that is one of the big things about how political change happens. It doesn't all come from parliaments um, and politicians. Um, and I think it can be hugely impactful. I remember speaking to somebody mm. who had gone to see, a, who was a convinced no voter, who'd gone to see a play during the Edinburgh Festival that had completely changed their mind. I think it was a play by Dave, David Heyman. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and it can be, and that person just completely went from no to yes on the basis of a piece of theatre, because I think that can, you know, the head and the heart are very different things and the, the impact of feelings and um that, that can have a big impact. And what about music? Do you remember that summer of the uh, the the collective, the national collective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think all, I think all these things. I think, I think the music matters. I mean, I think uh, the, 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 the people like myself and the, people, the likes of say Stuart Cosgrove and Pat Kane have talked about this. There was a there was one. Um, this is many, many, many years ago. In the middle of the 80s, there was one episode of The Tube, which is an amazing uh, music programme on Channel 4, where the, this one episode, the Proclaimers and Hue and Cry were introduced to um, a UK audience for the first time. And it was it was just like this. To, I, I'd never seen The Proclaimers before. It was just like this cathartic, amazing moment of... Because there was a cultural self-determination going on then in Scotland against the Thatcher government um, around kind of opposition to the poll tax and for a parliament... And um, that, that still actually has has influence um, today. And I, I'd just also just like make this quick point is that the, the stories and the folklore we tell are really really important in our collective memories. Too. I was I was speaking at the end of last year to the, the amazing national treasure Ian Hamilton, and Ian Hamilton his words sometimes he uses he um, stole or obviously reclaimed you know the stone of destiny from <laughs> Westminster Abbey, and it is. It's one of these stories that I, I remember being told in primary school in Dundee uh, uh, by teachers who practically were telling in an apolitical way, you know, they thought. And Ian, those sort of lineages of when that, you know, 1950 is the height of unionist Britain and Scotland. And, and it was, there was, you know, rascals and rebels like Ian doing things like that that kept a flame, you know, alive. And when I'm speaking to him, because when I spoke to Ian last year and interviewed him, um, there's a French uh, media outlet got in touch with me the last couple of weeks about Ian Hamilton. And the, the person asked me this great question. They said, Ian Hamilton was one of the, the powerful, you know, iconic rebels of his age at this height of Union Scone. Given independence is so mainstream, who are your rebels now and what would they look like and what would they be doing? And I thought, that's such a great question. I, I don't know the answer, the answer. to. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the the actual the referendum in 2014, you think of people like the the rickshaw guy who you know followed yeah. Labour yeah. MPs with the masters <laughs> of the universe and that one. I met him recently. Actually, he came to a meeting that we organised. Yeah. It was just I got my picture taken with him. He was really interesting, yeah. and I think you do get people who who are more more. I noticed that uh, Alaba were using a rickshaw. He laughed <laughs> in George Square. They were cycling down George Square. Uh, anyway, so I think Marlene, you've got another question. Maybe uh, just to kind of finish off. I I heard you saying once. Um, I mean, in the last sort of six months or so, Jerry, that um, uh, although we'd lost the vote in 2014, maybe we the, the idea had won, the idea of independence had won, mm -hmm. although we didn't, um, not enough of us voted for it. And uh, I've also heard you um, talking in, in terms of the independence is about the art of growing up. And yeah. do you think we need, do you think we're managing to, do a bit of that now compared to 2014? Well, you know, the growing up arguments, growing up always has always has a growing pains in it. You know, it's never going to be a completely linear path. That's something I always need to remind myself of when I'm when I'm thinking that. Um, the, the first point, the, the idea of independence used to be used to be very marginal in Scottish society. Um, it used to be the people like the Wendy Woods and and various other, you know, in Hamilton, in a sense, you know, really, really courageous individuals that kept that flame of fire. 
Um, and then, obviously, the SNP became an electoral uh, force and, and so on. Uh, but in 2014, we know that we know this from um, focus groups and, and, and lots and lots of hard evidence that lots of even soft no voters really liked the idea of independence. Why wouldn't you? Because independence is a, a good thing in the world, standing on your own feet, uh, taking decisions yourself. Scotland's right to decide. Scotland's right to decide is one of the, 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 the sound bites and principles that the pro-union camp fear the most because they know they know it has resonance. Trying to disagree with that is like you know the road to you know it's, it's not a good road. Um, on on your on your your second point, the art of growing up. It was a it was a point made uh, to me um, when when I wrote a book in the indie ref called Caledonian Dreaming. The Irish writer, uh, brilliant writer, Fintan O'Toole, um, oh, wrote an yes. introduction to it, and he yes. made it's him that originally made this point: the art of growing up. And it's it's a it's a it's a great argument because I do think I I I I see Scotland as there are areas we still need to get more mature in. There's areas where we still need to get more honest in. You know, we have we, we've had the issue of drug deaths. We have the issue of drug deaths rather um, that are that are pretty pretty scandalous and indefensible. We have terrible health inequalities. We have you know the the, the concentration of power in land and and elsewhere. Um, and we have things that we need to work out how how to how to address them, how to build coalitions to take on privilege to to make this a better place for for the the, the majority of people, and that that involves some hard questions about about ourselves, why we've not managed to do it before. It's not all the not all the fault of Westminster, um, and and accepting that some you know accepting responsibility is one of the first steps to then change it. And I think it's. Fintan O'Toole's argument is, is just a great, great argument. And in the arc of, let's say, the last seven years since the Indy Rev, at points I've thought, when we've had people saying, like, you know, let's have UDI next week or whatever, I've sometimes thought, God, you know, that maybe maybe I'm completely wrong, you know. But it always involves growing pains. That's what growing up is. And yeah. sometimes really difficult debates taking on people that you think are, you know, not, not acting from a best place or not that enlightened un- un- and also get a bit flack back yourself uh, uh, sometimes. That's that's part of it, and I I think that's just a natural um, set of uh, phenomena, really. And hopefully, we're going to come out of it uh, in, in a better place, prepared to really get down to you know, if we do win an independence referendum, to some really really tough debates. And I do think probably in all that, I've, I've said this many times, those debates really. Watch them have to start before the indie yeah. ref because because we prefigure the future by what we do now. You know the the, the future of Scotland post independence is being kind of created the beginning of it now. Absolutely. Well, that's a really good point at which we could stop because we've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today, Jenny. Thank We're you. grateful for you coming on the show, and um, we wish you all the best. And I'm sure all of us will be watching the results very closely next week. Thank you very much indeed. Thank ben. you again. Yeah, thanks very much. Good to talk to you. And the light on the rain.